Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 12 as I try to see a way in which I can convey a few more thoughts to you about the kingdom mentioned in John 3.3. Right now we're turning to Hebrews 12. John 3.3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We have chosen by the emphasis of the New Testament, we have chosen by the emphasis of Nicodemus, making a statement about Jesus' miracles that lend itself to the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth, that was presently being entered into when Jesus spoke those words to Nicodemus. For those of you who want more and to hear more about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the millennial kingdom, which I call the gospel kingdom because the word millennial is not in the Bible. There is a thousand year time period mentioned symbolically in Revelation chapter 20 and nowhere else, referring to the reign of Jesus Christ over his kingdom from the first coming to the second coming, is how we understand Revelation 20 in the light of what the rest of the Bible teaches us, because Revelation 20 is highly symbolic, like the rest of the book of Revelation, like the chain that is holding the devil, like a bottomless pit. If the pit was truly bottomless, then you'd fall out the other end. If by bottomless you mean there is no... it's a long way down, then it has a different symbolic meaning. No chain can hold the devil of a literal sort. It's got to be a symbolic restraint that he's under by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is mentioned in other places in plainer terminology. But when the Apostle Paul, a Jew, had an opportunity to write the Hebrews, that means he's writing Jews, and he writes them about a kingdom, he does not talk about a millennial kingdom. He does not mention anything taking place on earth at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea on that little piece of sand over there they call Israel. That Jerusalem was deserted by God 2,000 years ago and it will never be reclaimed by God. It's mocked throughout the New Testament. The Jerusalem that God cares about is a heavenly city. It's the Jerusalem that Abraham sought. A city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In Hebrews 11, the chapter before this chapter. The the Jews and Jerusalem and Israel at that time by Paul in Galatians chapter 4 were compared to Hagar and Ishmael. But the Jerusalem which is above, which Paul said is the mother of us all, is compared to the free woman Sarah and her son of promise Isaac. Now we, brethren, are the children of promise, as Isaac was. This is what the Bible teaches. If we back up to Galatians 3, we are the seed of Abraham. Because the Bible says, in Galatians 3.16, He saith not unto seeds, as of many, but to thy seed, which is Christ. The promises made to Abraham were spiritual promises that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Galatians 3.29 tells us, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
Those wonderful promises given to Abraham, the friend of God, about destroying all their enemies, about the whole earth being blessed by them, about the land being possessed by them, that's the heavenly country. And it is possessed by the people of God. Do you know the other name for heaven? Abraham's bosom. It's where Abraham wants to be. Abraham never owned a square foot of ground in that dry desert over there called Israel. The Bible tells us that. Stephen the deacon preached it in Acts chapter 7, that he didn't own any even to put the sole of his foot on. But God gave him all the land because God gave him heaven. We want to get our kingdoms right. The Apostle Paul, a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a very knowledgeable Jew, when he wrote the Jews, called Hebrews, in this book, here's what kingdom he offered them, and it has nothing to do with lions and lambs lying down in the Middle East, or Jesus sitting on some wooden throne over there, and animal sacrifices being restored, like so many of us heard about some millennial kingdom that's coming. You know, there were premillennialists, and there were postmillennialists, and there, but there isn't that millennium that they're talking about. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, and He's going to come again to deliver up that kingdom to God. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. Lions lying down with lambs is the fact that there's 200 of us in this room, and no one's fighting at the moment. Because it's describing the gospel church, and God saving men and changing their natures. Why does everybody want to be a literalist like Nicodemus? Nicodemus is the one that heard the words born again. And he says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Does he enter the second time into his mother's womb? That is a literalist. Unable, unwilling to look at the spiritual intent of words. The metaphorical intent of words. We're not like that. We let the whole, the scriptures interpret each other. And if you go to Isaiah 11, where you've got the lion lying down with the lamb, you will find out that it's about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And did he ever? Peter and Mary in the same church? Yes. And don't, don't laugh too much or we'll start calling names here that uh, we're all together. This is what I want to share with you. We open this service with verses 28 and 29 where it says, Wherefore we, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved because it's not like the Old Testament kingdom that was temporary. It was shaken away, that form of worship of God. I want verses 22 through 24. But ye are come. Now Paul, a Jew, is writing Jews and says that they are come. Are come. They're already part of this kingdom. And here's a description of it. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now the Israelites knew Mount Zion as a mountain, one of the seven mountains upon which Jerusalem was built. Moriah, which had the temple upon it. Mount Zion, which had a fortress upon it. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. But it's not the Zion on earth. It's the Zion in heaven. Ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. Brethren, We want the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual fulfillment, the spiritual city, the city that hath foundations, the city of the living God. It isn't on earth. 
It's in heaven. He tells them in uh, verse 14 of chapter 13 of the same book, Hebrews 13, 14, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. See, there's no continuing city on earth for the Jews. These are the Hebrews. The Hebrews are not being pointed to a millennium. The Hebrews are not being pointed to Jerusalem on earth. The Hebrews are not being pointed to a renewal, a recovery, a regathering of Jews. The Hebrews are being pointed to a heavenly kingdom. And it's described this way. Ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mega church in heaven, which whose names are written in heaven. That's where the membership role is. It's the book of life. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's where all our brethren are in spirit. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, instead of Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that's Jesus Christ's sprinkled blood, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That's a long mouthful of verses 22 through 24, but it describes the real kingdom that we're part of when we're baptized and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter into its visible form here on earth, the manifestation of it by being baptized. We're born again and translated into this kingdom in a regenerate form, a spiritual unseen form. Because without being born again, we can't even see the kingdom of God. We can't even look at this and appreciate what we're talking about. This is what Paul would offer Jews. This is an amazing fact. And when you look at the document and the sermons on our website called the Gospel Millennium, it's based a great deal off of this. Because this is what Paul offered Jews. There wasn't something else to offer them out in the future. We have been taught, many of us were taught in the past, that in the time to come, the Jews would be God's chosen people again. The Bible tells us so plainly that God has broken down the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles and united them together in one body in Christ. There isn't a difference and a distinction anymore. If there's any distinction at all, God's forsaken them except a very few of them, and He's made up His kingdom of Gentiles. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a universal kingdom of all of, of God's rule over all things anywhere. That's taught in the Bible. Many verses can be raised for it. His universal kingdom. There was an Israelite kingdom. That was God's rule over the Jews as a nation. David was its favorite and greatest king. There's a regenerate kingdom where we're spiritually translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear son. Colossians 1.13. That's an operation that God performs by making the, the internal change of us, delivering us out of the captivity of the devil and translating us into obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 would put it this way. We've been raised together to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in a vital way by our connection to Him. There's the gospel kingdom, which is the, the invisible more of a visible, external, baptized into it kingdom where we choose to submit to the rules of the king and follow kingdom conduct. 
And it's, I call it the gospel kingdom because wherever the gospel was preached, the New Testament, the kingdom was preached. Wherever Jesus was preached, the kingdom was preached. And gospel preaching, the gospel of the grace of God, is the gospel of the kingdom and Jesus Christ as that king. There's a heavenly kingdom. When the gospel kingdom on earth will be received up to join the saints that have gone before us, and the whole group together will be the heavenly kingdom. Paul, re- Paul spoke of looking forward to the heavenly kingdom when he would get a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18. If we make our calling and election sure, then an abundant entrance will be ministered unto us into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because while we're down here as members and citizens of His kingdom, it's only temporary until we're received up into glory and are in the permanent and final state of that kingdom. Let me share this passage with you. Matthew 21, verse 33. There's a householder. The householder is God. He planted a vineyard. It was His kingdom on earth. It began as the Israelite kingdom for 1,500 years before John and Jesus. He hedged about and he took care of that nation of Israel and blessed it and let it out to husbandmen. He gave it to the the Jews. And he went into a far country in, in this parable. The time drew near for fruit. He sent servants to gather the fruit from his vineyard. That is obedience and worship. From the, from the kingdom of Israel, from the church of God of the Old Testament. The husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Verse 35. That's how the Jews treated the prophets sent to them. He sent more servants in the first. In verse 36, they did the same thing. Last of all, he sent his son. He reasoned, and according to the proverb, they'll reverence my son. Verse 38. When the husbandman, the Jews, saw the son, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And will seize on the inheritance. And so they caught the Son of God and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him in verse 39. Now Jesus asks a question in this parable. When the Lord thereof, therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Those men that he gave that vineyard to, what will God do to them when he comes for the fact that they killed his son? The Jews answered in verse 41, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. The the Pharisees got it right. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You guys may be rejecting me, but I'm the headstone of the corner. And this kingdom is going to be built and lengthened and established and broadened, but not with you. Therefore, I say unto you in the next verse, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And what was the nation that brought forth the fruits thereof? Gentiles. Taken away from the Jews, given to the Gentiles. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. The Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. 
That's the violent taking the kingdom of heaven by force and pressing themselves into it by violently changing their lives because it says if you'll fall on him, you'll be broken. What will be broken? Your rebellious, stubborn, independent, selfish spirit will be broken to fall upon Christ and confess him Lord of everything in your life. Or he will fall on you like he did the Jews 40 years later and ground the nation to powder. Verse 45, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So there's about three categories. There's some that took Jesus for a prophet. There's the Jews that wanted to kill him. And then there's another nation that would bring forth fruits. Let's be that nation. We have said we are. We have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and flung ourselves into His kingdom. Let's stay there and praise Him and thank Him because we didn't belong at first. This was a Jewish setup on earth, but God changed it by their rebellion. The Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 13, You've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Acts 13, 45 through 48. This kingdom has been taken from Israel and given to the Gentiles. And they believed it. The gospel was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world through the preaching of Jesus and his apostles, through his apostles. The crucial issue that we want to ask ourselves about this kingdom is, do you see the king? Do you see the kingdom? And are you living like it? I don't want to be, I don't want to preach about being born again unless I press us to bring forth the evidence that we're born again. I don't want to preach about being born again unless we understand why we were born again. To be the children of God in this world. They don't know us because they didn't know Him. The Bible tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 John chapter 3. If the world had known that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, they would not have touched the Lord of glory. And if they knew who we were, as I've taught you before, there would be paparazzi surrounding this building. Because we are the sons of God. By divine choice and by divine regeneration. All glory and praise and thanks be to God. We should rejoice and be glad and glorify the word of the Lord like those Gentiles did in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13. That's what we should be doing. I ask you, do you see this king? Do you see this kingdom? Do you know its rules of citizenship? Do you live every day like you are a citizen of a different kingdom from everyone else? That you have a king and you have rules of citizenship that are different from how other people live. That is what the effect ought to be. We don't just want to know to be able to dot our I's and cross our T's about the kingdom. We want to live like we're the citizens of a kingdom with Jesus Christ as its head. Look at Matthew 19, since it's so close by. Matthew 19, C.I. Schofield and other dispensationalists and futurists that don't want to admit that the kingdom is here now, they want to tell you that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. 
Well, let's look at Matthew 19 as one example of how they're used as synonyms. Matthew 19, verse 23. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now there Jesus is giving one lesson, and he uses kingdom of heaven in verse 23 and kingdom of God in verse 24. It's called the kingdom. Either one works because the God of heaven would set up a kingdom. They say that uh, Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews, and because the Jews refused it, he then gave us a 2,000-year time period called the church parenthesis, where Gentiles were converted, but the kingdom was postponed for 2,000 years. They are so wrong. In John chapter 6, the Jews tried to forcibly make Jesus king, and Jesus turned them down. If you come over to John chapter 6, verse 15, he has just fed the 5,000. When Jesus, John 6, 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he thanked them and said, I've been waiting for this moment. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea. And it goes on to describe how he got away from that crowd. When that crowd caught up to him, it takes up in later in John chapter 6, verse 25. And when they had found him on the other side, he tried to get away from that crowd that was trying to make him a king. And when that crowd finally caught up to him, he spends the rest of John chapter 6 preaching hard doctrine to drive them away. The apostles came and said to him, don't you know this is hard doctrine when you're talking about eating your flesh and drinking your blood? Don't you know this is hard? He said, didn't I tell you that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him? These people don't really believe on me. And so he gave them a harder saying than that. We're going to get to it in John chapter 6. And from that time forth, it says that crowd went away and followed him no more. Did Jesus chase down the crowd that left him? No. He turned to his apostles and said, Will ye go away also? That is the Jesus of the Bible. That is the Jesus of the Bible. If you don't want to do it his way, then hit the highway. Father in heaven, we thank thee for putting it in our hearts to do it your way. Otherwise, we wouldn't. And we know that. They foolishly looked for a carnal millennial kingdom of Jews in Palestine with animal sacrifices and Jesus on a throne. That is so sick in comparison to what the Bible teaches. Let's look at Luke 16, 16, in case you haven't seen this one yet. I'm sharing a few select verses with you out of the many that I have here just to encourage you in this great kingdom that we are part of. And what we see and that we have entered into because we have been born again. But I want to ask again, are you and I, am I and you living as if we have a king who is Lord of every part of our lives? That is how we should live. Jesus is Lord 
of every part of our lives. And that is a sermon on the website that goes through a long, large list of every component of your life because the Bible has something to say about it because Jesus has already ruled on how you're to be a wife, how you're to be a husband, how you're to work on the job, how you're to manage your money, how you're to control your thoughts, how you're to rule your speech. On and on the Bible goes. It deals with your hair length. It deals with the clothes you wear. The New Testament is full of kingdom duties that we owe our King. Do you live like He's your King? Lord, help us to do that. We want to do that. Luke 16, 16. I quoted it so many times to you, you should be able to quote it to me. The law and the prophets were until John. That's the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. There was now a new kingdom that John instituted a new way of entrance that hadn't existed before, and that was immersion in water, the baptism of repentance, to show that you were repudiating your lifestyle, to choose the lifestyle dictated and ordered by the king of that kingdom, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Luke chapter 3, and let's find out what it means when it refers to the works of repentance. On Wednesday evening, four nights, four days ago, we looked at baptism. And one of the requirements of baptism is having fruits meet for repentance. And that is not vague in the New Testament. Let me show you. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then said he, this is John the Baptist, to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Does everyone here understand that this is the Jesus of the Bible and the John the Baptist of the Bible? This is how they spoke. A multitude came forth to be baptized, and he said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because they weren't there in sincerity. No one had warned them to flee from the wrath to come. They were there picking on John. And he's about to expose them. Some of them will respond with good questions. Others are going to turn away from him, depending on whether they were Pharisees or publicans. Why does he say, O generation of vipers? Because it was that generation of men that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ that the wrath of God was going to fall upon in 70 A.D. and destroy them. He says in other places, well, he says right here in verse 9, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. God was already starting to chop that nation down and to burn it up. But back into the middle of verse 8. Don't say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He had started that 8th verse with the words, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat, worthy of repentance. And so verse 10. The people, not the Pharisees, but the people, asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. If you've got extra clothing and someone doesn't have any, give them some. If you have extra food and someone doesn't have any, give them some. That is fruits, meat for repentance. That's love of the brethren. 
That's love of others that are Christ. That's love of someone God puts in your path that shows the changed heart of repentance. Verse 12, Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Don't you pad your pockets by saying that a person's tax liability is greater than the Roman government has put upon them. Only charge with the Roman government gave you with honesty in business. Because that was a very tricky business, being a tax collector for a foreign government. Verse 14, The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man. Do not abuse your position as a soldier occupying a foreign nation. Neither accuse any falsely. And be content with your wages. Don't steal from the populace. What soldiers have done always is to steal from the people. And so it tells us right there, this is a very practical kingdom, isn't it? Very practical. Love, give, be honest in business, be content, don't break the law. As he goes down through people, publicans, and soldiers, as John the Baptist explains what real repentance is, and that's the changes that took place as men came into the kingdom. You know, you were a willing captive in the palace of the devil himself, but a stronger man than the devil came by and delivered you out of his palace. That's what Luke chapter 11 teaches us. When was the kingdom set up? During the kings of the Roman Empire, just as Luke described to us. John and Jesus taught that the kingdom was at hand, and it was. Men were pressing into it, as we just read. Did Jesus cast out devils by the power and finger of God? Yes. That meant that the kingdom was there. And so forth and so on. How does the kingdom of God or of Christ relate to the church and churches? Local churches of Jesus Christ are visible outposts of His invisible kingdom. You know, this is kind of visible. But what the world doesn't see is a spiritual union that we have among ourselves and with Christ and the saints that have gone before us. It is an invisible kingdom to them. They just think that it's a bunch of nuts that have got together to worship someone else that they're calling king. And that's what the Acts of the Apostles tells us about. Local churches are subsets of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but not equal to it. Baptized believers between churches, for various reasons, are still in the kingdom of God because you entered it by baptism. Thus, the superset of the kingdom includes Christ's churches and believers and those that are in heaven. And they're not part of a local church. They're part of the general assembly. And the angels are part of it. But they're not part of the family of God. And you know, we can divide and slice and cut for you to see the different aspects of it because they're not part of the family of God. They weren't adopted. So in Ephesians 3, we're the family of God. Most of the families in heaven, a little bit of it's left on earth, and we're soon going to be gathered together in one body, in one place by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Ephesians 1 was about. And I preached it to you not too long ago. The church that's above is called the General Assembly, and it's everybody's name that is written in the book of life. We're in the book of life. We're part of that kingdom. But we're just not there yet. Most of them are there. The angels are part of that kingdom, though they're not part of the family of God, because there are servants in that kingdom. The kingdom was present with John, but there wasn't a local church on earth. Baptized believers entered his kingdom, but local churches didn't exist for several years. 
You enter the kingdom by repentance and baptism to Jesus Christ before church membership. The kingdom is always singular, but local churches are always plural. It's the churches of Galatia. It's the churches of Asia. The only kingdom equals church identity is the general assembly or church of the firstborn of Hebrews 12, which is the big megachurch. What happens to a man between churches? Is he outside Christ's kingdom? What if he obeys Christ as king to separate from a disobedient church? Does he lose his place, power, and presence of Christ and his spirit for obeying the king? Help me. I, some, only a few of you understand why I'm even saying some of these things. When men make the kingdom of God equal to a local church denomination, they involve themselves in various heresies and problems. If you make the kingdom equal to and limited to the local church, then baptism is door to the church because baptism was the way to enter the kingdom. But then you get into a local church without mutual consent because there is no mutual consent to enter the kingdom. When you make the kingdom limited to the local church, then you have non-resident member heresy with no New Testament function at all. When you make kingdom equals to the local church, then you have perversions of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through Why don't we turn there and let me read it to you. This will help you understand John 3, 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a corruption of a passage of Scripture that we don't want to corrupt. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not, and this is, this is also in Galatians 5, this is in Ephesians chapter 5, the same terminology. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What kingdom do we inherit? The everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our eternal inheritance that, that, uh, that, that fadeth not away, that's reserved in heaven for you, that's given to us as an, in, as an inheritance. We're heirs of that kingdom. We don't have it yet. We're heirs of it. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But once you make the kingdom of God equal to the local church, do you know how they interpret this verse? Know ye not that the unrighteous shall be excluded from the local church. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall remain members of the local church. No, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice what's under consideration here, verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We are talking about something far higher than local church membership. We are talking about acceptance with God by being justified by Christ and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Kingdom, when, when you limit kingdom to local church, ministers are neutered outside the church and cannot do anything because they have no kingdom authority if they're outside of a local church. What if a minister called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a pastor separates himself from a church that is in error? Does that mean he loses the Holy Spirit? Does that mean he loses his ordination? He doesn't lose anything. Paul left Titus alone in the, in the island of Crete to set in order all the things that were wanting on that island. By himself. Kingdom. When you limit it to the local church, you lose the Spirit to obey the Spirit to leave a church. Okay, some of you don't know what I'm talking about, so I'll just let it go. 
When you die, do you think you're going to leave the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Are you going to leave local church membership? When you die? Yeah, when you die. When you die, you're out of the local church. What do you think we do with our membership? Just keep you there with an asterisk? Dead but still loved? No, we're gone from the local church membership, but boy, we're still in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and bang, we transfer into the part that's in heaven, the large part. The spirits of just men made perfect. Don't have our bodies yet. That's why it says the spirits of just men made perfect. I chased a few rabbits, and some of you may not know where I was going with that, but some of you do, and I'm sorry that sometimes I have to do that. But it's not worth explaining all of it. What I want to explain to you is John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you cannot see that reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's sitting on his throne, and that there are saints in this world that live and obey him and love him and they're all part of one kingdom and there are angels operating in the sphere of this universe to protect them and are servants of them and they're all part of one kingdom when you die you're translated by your your spirit is taken to that kingdom and it remains there you're part of it forever this kingdom does not go away it shall not be left to other people and it will destroy and break in pieces all other kingdoms and jesus is king of it the son of david sitting on his throne May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. And may the most important thing of John 3, 3 be to all of us. Am I born again? Do I have the evidence of being born again in my life? Am I fulfilling the reason God regenerated me? Do I see the kingdom of God? Do I see the kingdom of God in such a way that it's changed my life? Do I live my life by the rules of the king of the kingdom of God? Those are the most important questions. That's the most important thing that we want to leave with today. There's a king. He's our king. He's Lord of our lives. He's Lord of every part of our lives. We can worship him passively with him grinding us to powder, or we can worship him actively by us falling on him and breaking ourselves and breaking our foolish will and changing our lives to please him more perfectly. He is worthy of your total devotion. I am his ambassador. And I declare to you the words that Jesus said to Nicodemus, without being born again, you can't see it. Without being born of water and of the Spirit, you can't enter it. We have been born again. We have declared that we've entered it. Let's live like it. Let's be faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.